1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I am Bill Nygut, and glad to have you all with us. Boy, we had a real Brook Benton night in Georgia across most of the state last night. It was a rainy night, heavy rain across much of the state. Lots of thunder and lightning kept many people up throughout most of the night. Uh, What's going to be really interesting, the rain's supposed to let up in many parts of the state uh, today, and it'll be interesting to see if it has any impact on the extraordinary early turnout that we are seeing in this Senate runoff election, we got a lot to cover in terms of the runoff, and we'll get to it right now with our panel. It's Wednesday's, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Greg Bluestein, um, who um, not only, of course, reports for the AJC, but he now uh, reports on the does analysis on uh, politics for all the platforms of NBC News and. And as you've said, Greg, you also keep accepting these invitations to do all these other shows. I mean, slow down, my friend. <laughs>
2: well, it's, busy. it's a busy time of year, but the fun part is we also have lots of campaign events we got to go cover as well.
1: Yes, I understand that. Well, thank you for being here uh, today, as always. Chuck Williams, reporter from WRBL-TV Columbus, long-time veteran reporter uh, down there in the Columbus area. Chuck, thank you so much for being with us, great to be here, Bill. Maya King is back with us. Uh, Maya covers politics uh, in the Southeast for the New York Times, reporting out of Atlanta. And Maya, your beat just couldn't be more exciting than it is, and has been for months now, right?
3: <laughs> very true. Very true. I don't think things are going to slow down in Georgia anytime soon, even
1: after the election. <laughs> I think I'm. I think you're. Completely correct about that. And we're also glad to welcome for the first time uh, to Political Rewind, Baymende Johnson. Baymende, a political science professor at the University of Georgia. You're a fairly new arrival here, Baymende. You have came in, I think, in the summer. So, what a great time to be starting your political science career in uh, the state of Georgia.
0: Yes, and thank you for inviting me. Very excited to be here. And I actually see this as a bit of a homecoming because I grew up in Georgia, went to Georgia State. So very, very uh, excited to be here and be at UGA right now.
1: Um, Where'd you grow up? What part of the state?
0: Um, Fulton County, so the College
3: Park area.
1: Oh, okay. Well, and and you just came from Hamilton College, which is, in, of course, near Syracuse, New York, and it's a beautiful small college community. Um, now you're at uh, the, mega, the mega campus, <laughs> University of Georgia.
0: <laughs> yes, center of the political universe in the U.S. right
1: now. That's true. All right, let's get right to it. Greg Bluestein. Um, all of a sudden, in the last couple of days, we've had uh, news stories bubble up about where the heck Herschel Walker actually makes his primary residence. First, we saw a story uh, the other day, which said that uh, Walker continues to um, take a homestead exemption, a tax break, uh, claiming his primary residence is, in fact, in Texas. It's a Texas homestead exemption. So there's that part of the story. And then um, Maya King's colleagues at The New York Times have reported that uh, it turns out that the home that Herschel Walker owns in Atlanta and what which, which he listed as his residency when he registered for this seat. Um, in fact, it's been a rental for maybe a year or more. What's going on here, Greg?
2: Yeah, this is like deja vu in a
1: sense, because we covered all this, a lot of his ground
2: a year ago before he even got in the race. There's a lot of dialogue and rhetoric about whether or not he lived in Georgia. And he didn't. He changed his voting residency. He, he registered to vote in Georgia. Um, just days before he got into the race. uh, He had formally announced his his campaign for U.S. Senate back in August of 2021. And so his Republican rivals at the time were calling him a carpetbagger, saying that he, he was even filming um, you know, interviews in his Texas home at the time, and then it kind of bubbled down for a while, and now it's heating up all over again with these kind of newly emerged tax records that are uh, making a lot of news again. But this is nothing new in the campaign at all. This has been something that Gary Black, that Latham Sandler, that the other Republican rivals uh, for Herschel Walker way back when were making a case of, which were saying, hey, this guy's lived in Texas for decades. How can he represent Georgia?
1: Well, um, Maya, uh, I do want to point out, though, uh, that while we, we, we've long known that he ha- had made his residence in Texas, he had played for the Cowboys down there, <laughs> um, I think what's emerged are the questions about whether he had, uh, had the right to uh, get a tax exemption, a, a property tax exemption, a homestead exemption in uh, Texas if, in fact, he's living here. And then this notion that he really actually rented out his home in Atlanta for a good period of time, even as he called it his residence when he uh, joined the campaign, right?
3: Yes. And the fact that his homestead tax exemption was filed as late as 2022. So that his primary residence was still front of mind in Texas as he was actively running in Georgia. And I think the big question that has been floating around here is what happens if he actually is elected? where will he spend most of his time, and what will be the conflict of interest for a sitting United States senator to be claiming and receiving a $1,500 tax exemption on a home in Texas while representing ostensibly the interests of Georgia uh, in the U.S. Senate?
1: Um, Chuck, uh, you know, this is the sort of thing that often bubbles up late in a, a campaign, and I guess the question is, whether it makes much difference at all. What's your take on that, Chuck? You know,
4: it's interesting because I go back to the Republican primary in the second congressional district. Jeremy Hunt moved into Columbus to run for that Republican seat, uh, for that Republican nomination to challenge Sanford Bishop. Jeremy clearly came in out of Atlanta last minute, and the Republican Part, the Republican voters in the second district rejected Jeremy Hunt as their, nominate, as their nominee. What that tells me is, you know, maybe the carpet bagging, and this is car I mean, well, Jeremy Hunt was carpet bagging. It does a carpet bagger matter? It mattered to some to Republican voters in, in Southwest Georgia. So, you know, I mean, if, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of the lens I'm looking at it through, Bill.
1: Uh, Baymende, what's interesting about all of this is um, you don't really have to uh, have established a residence in the state in which you run for the United States Senate. You merely have to live in that state uh, after you've been elected. And And so uh, Maya's point about what happens oh. next to Hershey Walker is particularly important should he win this election. <laughs>
0: Right, and something I think is slightly interesting to maybe touch on your previous question is, one, regarding the, the impact for voters, one, um, as Dan that herschel Walker might have, is that strong association that he has with UGA, um, UGA football in particular. Uh, so the, for some voters who are inclined to support him, it's probably not uh, a huge concern, um, and those who are perhaps less attentive this, this might not be on, the, on their radar because of his strong association uh, with EJ football, which gets played up in his ass. Um, but post-election, uh, the issue of his residency definitely, well, if he were to win, uh, would definitely become more salient.
1: Um, Greg, so you've reported um, that the Georgia Democratic Party is now asking the State Attorney General's office to look into whether uh, Herschel Walker has violated Georgia law. And, and I was, as I read your story, I wondered to, uh, to what extent it would be Ill- illegal in Georgia uh, if he's taking a homestead exemption in Texas. But then I see in the story that one of the reasons they filed is suggesting that he may have voted in Georgia illegally if his primary residence is in fact in Texas.
2: Yeah, remember, this is, again, a flashback to 2021 because there was an ethics complaint filed against his wife for voting in Georgia while they had their primary residence Mm -hmm. in Texas. And that was thrown out. Um, That was thrown out by an ethics uh, investigator, Secretary of State, because it's really dubious to go down that path, right? Because college students, there's all sorts of uh, a whole can of worms that you open if you start throwing out votes like that. Um, But I think the the bigger issue might be in Texas, um, where where investigators are apparently looking to see whether or not he he should refund that money. You know, it's only fifteen hundred dollars or so. But again, as Maya noted, the bigger part is that he, on a legal document, he said his primary residence was in Texas and not Georgia. And this is at a time when every step he's taking is being scrutinized. So it was a huge blunder and one of many. That he 's made in the last few weeks at a time where frankly his campaign can 't afford these types
1: of mistakes yeah I want to talk about that a little more in a couple of minutes, but before we move up the subject uh, my um as I asked uh, Chuck you know it 's hard to tell these kinds of stories bubble up in campaigns late in the game, but I think the larger issue here is this reminds us that Herschel Walker was recruited by Donald Trump to seek this seat. He had not shown any great interest in being involved, of course, in Georgia politics before that. He wasn't living in Georgia uh, when uh, Trump uh, started uh, trying to convince him to run for the seat. So from my point of view, this is part of that larger scenario about Herschel Walker's genuine interest in representing the state of Georgia, being in the U.S. Senate at all. Is that, is that a fair question to even ask?
3: I think so. And it's not just the fact that he was recruited by President Trump. It was It's the fact that he had the overwhelming support of the Republican base in Georgia and sailed through a primary with little to no accountability other than that of his opponents in the primary and now has had to face sort of this onslaught. Of um, I think every week is like a different October surprise with Herschel Walker and with his campaign because they really didn't have to contend with a lot of the worst of this oppo research during the primary. Um, Greg's got a great story up this morning that kind of highlights the fact that they're getting hit with all they're having the campaign, the Walker campaign is having to contend with sort of the full weight of all of their candidates flaws um, at a moment where you really just want to be running through the finish line.
4: You know, and exactly what Ma says and Greg says, I go back to it. I go back to an interview I did with Gary Black right before the primary, pretty lengthy interview. And Gary point blank said he's unelectable. And this is why all of this is going to be coming out. These commercials. I mean, Gary Black even did a commercial that he said the Democrats would run against Walker the day after the primary primary and Walker was the nominee. I mean, Gary Black, bless his heart, I mean, he was trying to warn Republicans what was coming, but nobody was listening or not, not enough were listening because Gary Black was as articulate about what was, what train was on the track as any politician I've heard in the run-up to that primary.
1: Um, Well, let's go ahead and dive into uh, your reporting this morning, Greg. Um, You do talk about the many Uh, problems that Walker has faced as he's run for this seat. I thought one of the most interesting quotes in the article was from Jeff Duncan, uh, the lieutenant governor, who, of course, has been an anti-Trumper for a long time now. Uh, who suggested that uh, this was a mulligan, this was a chance for Herschel Walker to reset the campaign, go in a direction that might be uh, a bit more favorable to him, and that uh, Duncan suggests he hasn't really done that yet. Talk a little bit about what you reported.
2: Yeah, well, aside from having Governor Kemp on the campaign show with him, there's been really no difference in Herschel Walker's message from before the midterm and after it. Um, he's leaning even harder into the MAGA base in, in some ways. Uh, Talking about transgender politics and policies and border control and all these issues, even more so, I I think, in some ways, than it did before the the midterm. But at the same time, his 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 flaws, his his blunders are being magnified in ways because of the attention on this race uh, that weren't, you know, they were magnified before, but they're even magnified even even more so now. Um, He was off the campaign show for five days at a time when um, Senator Warnock was literally having more than a dozen events. Um, you know, this included uh, weekend voting where Democrats feel like they built a pretty big cushion, um, kind of getting the field alone while Republicans were trying to block Saturday voting in a failed legal attempt. Um, you know, he's had these gaffes on the campaign trail um, talking about vampires and werewolves that are being used very effectively by Democrats in that split screen ad that we saw from Hershel, from Senator Warnock's campaign. It might be the ad of the cycle, not just in Georgia, but in the nation. Of you know, basically a focus group of people listening to Herschel Walker's own words, and then walking out in disgust after hearing them, um, and then you know the inability to land certain arguments. Um, you know, even Governor Kemp had to kind of step in and, and make an argument about the federal climate tax bill that that Herschel Walker would make. And I, look, I've known from the inside, that Republicans have been trying to push him to make this argument. weeks now, he didn't make it, so Governor Kemp basically said, I'm going to go make it for him. Uh, It's not a position you'd think that the nominee for U.S. Senate at a time like this would be in, but here we are.
1: Hey, Mende, the key to this Mm -hmm. entire runoff um, is basically more than 200,000 voters. We don't know how many of them are going to show up at the polls again, and we're going to talk in a minute about turnout so far. But uh, more than 200,000 Georgians who voted for Brian Kemp but did not cast a ballot for Herschel Walker in the general election. And there were down-ballot Republicans who got even more votes uh, uh, it, it, and left Herschel with an even bigger deficit uh, compared to his other Republicans on the ticket. And, and the one thing I would like to say, it's it's there's a lot to talk about, to unpack in terms of the mistakes Herschel mm-hmm. Walker makes, um, issues around his campaign. But when it comes right down to it... The cliche is true. It's a turnout election, and Governor Kemp has lent to Herschel Walker his now robust uh, get-out-the-vote machinery. They've got hundreds and thousands of people out there trying to get Republicans to vote, so do Democrats. But my point is, mandate um, it's <laughs> not as if this race is over by any means. Herschel Walker is going to have an army out there trying to turn out voters on his behalf.
0: Correct, yeah, for a lot of people that, and are you able to hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. Yep. Um, for a lot of people, uh, they were surprised at the, the closeness, even with the drop-off in the Kemp votes. Um, you still will, of course, have some voters who are just completely turned off from Walker because of the numerous scandals. But for some voters, and Walker even said this in one of his ads, it's not necessarily about him. It's about trying to be a bit more competitive in the Senate. So that might be on the minds of some voters, although one additional issue is that for even those voters, they recognize that the Democrats will have an advantage in the Senate Um, anyway. uh, So you do see Kemp, who was a bit more quiet earlier on, coming out in in full force uh, to try to support uh, Walker. But um, there have also been ads uh, run by a number of organizations with Republicans saying, I voted for Kemp. I will not vote for Walker. So trying to still draw that contrast, even though Kemp now seems to be forcefully throwing his weight behind Walker.
1: All right, let's turn to uh, Raphael Warnock for a few minutes, Maya. Uh, 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 Former President Obama comes in tomorrow. I think one of the places he'll be is down in the Columbus area, and we'll ask Chuck about uh, that in just a minute. Um, But uh, to what extent do you see uh, the uh, power that President Obama brings in? to encourage people to turn out for Raphael Warnock. He is the one genuine star of the National Democratic Party at this point.
3: Well, I was, um, and I think most of the people on this call were with the former president uh, in College Park last month when he came, I think the week before the election, to campaign for the entire Democratic ticket. And the energy on the ground was unmistakable. There were uh, thousands of people who had crowded this, A convention center just to listen to him. And it's not necessarily like the influence, I think, of former President Obama coming to Georgia, of Michelle Obama recording these robocalls. It gets people to the polls and it gets people excited. But it also means that the thousands of people who will come out and come to these events, um, the expectation at least is that they will go back into their communities, back to their friends and get them to vote. Because we know that this is a race that's just going to come entirely down to turnout. Like, we just laid out all of Herschel Walker's flaws and the key missteps he's made right before this election. And he still is very much in the fight and could win. Because if Democrats don't turn out, and if, you know, if Raphael Warnock doesn't run up the score in these really important metro Atlanta counties, all of these efforts are for naught. So I think that Obama is almost an insurance policy of sorts for this level of turnout to make sure that it continues at a pace um, and that it, it remains, you know, extra sky high in order to put him over the top uh, next Tuesday.
1: Chuck, he'll be down your way tomorrow. Talk a little bit about what's planned for Obama in the Columbus uh, area.
4: But Obama won't be here. He'll be, Obama's going to be in Atlanta, but Warnock is here. Oh, tonight. oh I'm sorry. Yeah, Warnock is in Columbus tonight, and Walker is in Columbus tomorrow. One of the interesting things about Warnock, he's going to be at a church in East Columbus where he – it was the last stop he made before voting started on the Monday night before the election on Tuesday. And he got – Senator Warnock got wound up. And it really sounded his closing statement in that. And you can find it on Twitter and and on YouTube. But the last four minutes of it sounded like the end of a sermon. And it was a passion that I had not really heard from Senator. But it was just it, it flowed. And he was, you know, he was talking in cadence, but he was into it. The crowd was into it. And they made a commercial out of it, I believe. Um, And it was really powerful. And he's gonna be back at that same church tonight. I mean, and his campaign was clearly gearing for that moment because they brought in, it was the first, right after the the time Mm -hmm. change, they brought in Hollywood theft style lighting that they lit the stage, they lit the crowd around. They were prepared, and they had videographers everywhere. So they were clearly using it. It would be interesting to see if they do that tonight with a night rally and if they do that for something that they'll use over the weekend. But they clearly came in ready to use whatever he said, and they used it very effectively, I thought.
1: Uh, Bemende, by the way, thank you for your correction about Obama being in Atlanta, and we'll talk about just where in a minute. But, Bemende, we should point out, that the kind of setting that Chuck just described and the kind of Hollywood treatment is no longer unusual in uh, major political campaigns. We just we don't want to leave our listeners with the impression that they're doing something exceptional here. Uh, uh, We are seeing that sort of treatment of candidates in speaking engagements uh, all over the place and have for quite some time now.
0: Right. Yeah. You saw that with the recent midterm election and some of the more competitive Senate races where you had candidates bringing out, you know, the the um, speakers, the endorsements who could bring the most attention uh, to their campaign. So it definitely um, wouldn't point it out as being distinct or unusual of the Warnock campaign.
1: Okay, Greg, so I'm, I'm glad I've been corrected on where uh, former President Obama will be tomorrow. So uh, where is he going to be? What can we tell listeners about his appearance?
2: Well, he'll be in metro Atlanta. He'll be in Atlanta. Uh, there'll be thousands of people there. It's So look, it's really interesting because earlier this week, um, Senator Warnock had Dave Matthews band out. That was aimed at a very distinct Middle-aged, white, suburbanite crowd. Um, <laughs> Patricia Murphy, my colleague at the AJC, joked that there's not a, a babysitter in Dunwoody uh, around because so many <laughs> parents, so many folks that, that I know personally were in that crowd. You see, Dave Matthews said this is going to be a different – You know, there will certainly be a diverse crowd uh, at, uh, you know, tomorrow night, but it's, it's more aimed at the Democratic base core Democratic, and particularly black voters. We saw that um, a few weeks ago when Obama came, when President Obama came for the entire Democratic ticket, um, 6,000 or so people piled into a, an arena at College Park, um, and we're going to see a huge crowd again. And so right now, Senator Warnock is going after sort of the and, and both crowd, like the, 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 the Democratic core constituency plus, I should say and plus, and uh, the swing voters, because they they prove so pivotal. We're not talking about a handful of voters here. We're talking about two hundred thousand, as we mentioned earlier, two hundred thousand voters who backed Governor Kemp um, and did not back Herschel Walker. That that's that was the key to getting him this far, getting to a runoff. And uh, he's not ignoring those voters in in this period either.
1: My, I'd love to have you uh, pick up where Greg uh, left off with that. But let's add to that the fact: one of the most intri- unusual events, I think, in this runoff season. Uh, was the event in which Democrats brought in uh, uh, people who had voted for Brian Kemp for governor, said they really want him to be their governor, uh, but they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker. Very unusual approach, but it's just the sort of thing Greg was just talking about.
3: Yeah, and it delivers a message that, that I think the Warnock campaign wants out there at this point, which is that Republicans or even moderates who might not have thought about voting for Democrats or a Democrat for the Senate should feel a lot more comfortable doing so and perhaps join the other 200,000 either Kemp Third Party, Kemp Blank, or Kemp Warnock voters uh, on December 6th. And I was with Senator Warnock on Sunday, and someone actually asked him about this in the news conference, whether he expected those 200,000 voters uh, who may not have voted for Walker to vote for him, and he laid claim to them. He said, I believe they're Warnock voters. And so not only now do you have this uh, direct appeal to those voters, but, I mean, Warnock and his team have been a lot more confident um, in where they believe those, those voters will go. But as you can see, I mean, they've poured a lot of money and, and effort into, into making sure that they do actually vote for Senator Warnock. You don't just invite Dave Matthews to come perform at the Roxy <laughs> as, you know, a show for the final week. Like, this was a very clear play the exact kind of voters who may otherwise feel really uncomfortable. I think in Georgia, um, you don't see a lot of split ticket voters, but this is a clear play for them at this stage.
1: All right. um, Maya King gets the last word for this segment of Political Rewind. We've got to take our first break of the show. Lots more to talk about, and we'll continue when we come back in just a moment. Greg Bluestein, Maya King, Chuck Williams, and Bemende Johnson join me for uh, today's Political Rewind. Let's look at early voting. Um, I, I think, Greg, I, I, I saw that yesterday, Tuesday, um, there was another record turnout at the uh, polls for early voting. Um, we are up to like 834,000 people who have cast ballots uh, in, the, uh, in, in the early voting stage of the race.
2: Yeah, we have to look at this in context too. It's great to see early voting numbers soar, but you're also condensing a three-week early voting period into just one week, and you kind of have to do that if you're going to only have a four-week, um, uh, four-week uh, runoff. Like you know, we're used to nine-week runoffs; we only have a four-week runoff because the uh, the, the election did not even get certified until a few days before early voting began. But you know, Democrats are very enthusiastic about the high turnout. It looks like my, my colleague uh, at the AJC Mark did analysis, it looks like Warnock has a clear overall advantage, especially with large numbers of voters in Metro Atlanta uh, counties that lean democratic among counties that backed Warnock 478,000 people had voted through Tuesday in counties that supported Walker, 355,000 ballots have been cast. But the real worry for, for Democrats right now is election day turnout, right? Republicans, often or usually or almost always win election day turnout and by big margins. And um, Herschel Walker won election day turnout in the midterm by about 15 points. Um, And so we're looking at uh, a very unpredictable electorate. We don't know how many people are going to actually show up on Tuesday. It's almost impossible to predict that a lot of the midterm projections were way off. Um, But no one feels very confident right now. But I can tell you Democrats are at least optimistic about these early voting numbers right now.
1: Um, uh, let's look at the overall yeah. demographics and then break them down a little bit more. We've seen at this point, and I'm using the figures that our friend Ryan Anderson, who runs the Georgia Votes website, which so many of us have turned to through for elections for some time now. Um, uh, Bemende, uh Ryan Anderson uh, <laughs> shows us that 35 plus percent of the early voters so far are African-American. They're black voters. That, of course, is a higher percentage uh, than uh, is needed to for a Democrat to win an election. And it's going to keep coming down a bit, I assume, since uh, blacks do not re- represent that large a percentage of the total population. It's already come down a bit. Whites are now mm-hmm. at 52%. This is like reading tea leaves at this stage, but what do you make of that?
0: All right. If, if you're in the Warnock campaign, I think you're going to be um, uh, happy with those numbers so far. Um, Of course, the the demographics would suggest that those voters are going to be more likely to vote for Warnock um, than Walker. Uh, The concerns about same-day voting are definitely valid. Uh, There have been reports of longer than perhaps expected wait times with early voting, which might be exacerbated on voting day. So seeing um, high percentages right now for black voters would be encouraging to the Warnock
3: campaign
1: um maya um women voters are outnumbering um, men voters by a good 11 points uh that number is narrowing a bit as well but the problem with trying to look at things by gender is we don't know who those women are whether how many of them are swing voters so again it's tea leave reading maya
3: it is and i and i wonder too um how motivating the issue of abortion still is for women voters because that was really what uh, worked very well for Democrats, not just in Georgia but across the country, was uh, in the general election. So, if this is another case where women voters are not just motivated to um, elect Senator Warnock, but or elect or even elect uh, Herschel Walker, if if women voters are motivated to push back on someone who has already made pretty staunchly anti-abortion stance, um, then that's that's good news for for Senator Warnock. And I think is no secret. Why he has advertisements like one that I'm sure all of us have seen or heard, which is a woman who says she's a lifelong Republican, supported Brian Kemp, um, a white conservative woman around metro Atlanta saying that she was nervous or had concerns Mm -hmm. about Herschel Walker. feels like that's another play again for the kinds of voters (laughs) that Senator Warnock is going to really need. Um, to re- to to turn out and to vote for him. Um, so it is hard to look into these numbers, but we can throw around a few theories.
1: Well, Chuck, two questions for you, really. One, a number that is a little bit easier to parse, perhaps, is that more than 70% of the people who have cast uh, early ballots are over the age of 50. Um, and we do think that voters in that age bracket and, and actually – 44% are over 65. Older voters tend to vote Republican. Um, we don't know, again, if that's the case here, but but it, if I'm from the Walker campaign, I'd be encouraged by that. And add to that, um, your thoughts about that, and add to that what's going on down there in the second congressional district, including the Columbus area with early voting.
4: You know, we are talking about tea leaves right now, and trying to read them can be a very risky proposition. And you know, there's no doubt older voters are going to the polls. What does that mean? I had a Republican operative tell me late last or over the weekend as the early voting numbers were starting to come in and they were big numbers of the counties that did vote on the weekend. He told me that anybody who says they know what's going on is making it up right now. None of us are sure what this is what these numbers are gonna bear out to show. But you know, in, but I do know here in Muskogee County, we're having heavy, heavy turnout. I mean, we've had over 17,000 people vote in four days of early voting, and Friday was, a brief, Saturday was an abbreviated day, and Sunday was only one location. So, But to put that 17,000 into perspective, Bill, we had 34,000 in early in-person advance vote for the November general. Mm-hmm. We're halfway there with 17 days in the general of advanced voting, with four days here. So, you know, and then you look, I mean, throughout the 2nd District, I mean, if you get down to smaller counties, they didn't start until Monday because most of those counties didn't do the weekend option. And so, you know, you'll, you'll sort of see what that means when the final numbers come in on Friday night, but big, big numbers.
1: Greg, um, the Jolt has reporting on early voting. And for all I know, you may have contributed this particular section uh, to the Jolt today. But um, uh, Scott Paradise uh, at the Walker campaign is quoted as saying they feel encouraged uh, by early voting because nine of the top 10 counties with the highest turnout were counties that Walker carried in the midterms by a large margin. That's a good spin to put on it, but of course those are smaller, tend to be smaller counties. It's not like it's Fulton and DeKalb. Um, But the other point that that he makes that I do think is is important is uh, his observation that Herschel Walker won election day voters in the general election by 15 points, a 220,000 vote margin, uh, which is another reason why Looking at what's happening in early voting doesn't necessarily give us a picture of where this is going to end up.
2: Yeah, look, you're exactly right. that's that's Scott Paradise's spin. That's his job is to spin and show um, show, show optimism for his candidate. Uh, look, we saw the same thing with, with Democrats who were way behind in the polls um, in, in the run up to the midterm. There's there's a lot less poll polling right now, so we really don't know uh, other than uh, expecting a close race. But you know when he talks about those top ten, those soaring turnout for those, those 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 counties, we're talking about basically 10,000 total votes out of out of uh, 300,000 cast through Monday. So we're not talking about a huge proportion of votes there uh, in these smaller rural counties where turnout is pretty high. But the, again, the more important point is that election day turnout. Republicans have this advantage. Um, if it's 15 points, uh, you know, is that going to be enough? Again. Um, is what, what what is turnout on election day going to look like? Um, how many of those reluctant Walker supporters are going to come back to the polls um, and vote? How many voters are going to come? You know, how, how many voters who really wanted to vote for governor's race or other races are going to come back for this U.S. Senate race? And without Senate control on the line, how many how many voters are going to really be that enthusiastic about voting in general? Right? Um, Senator Warnock wants to make this race not about national so tr- a lot of them make the race about a contrast between the candidates. And so that plays into his favor, whereas Herschel Walker has tried to make this race a national, sort of a referendum on Joe Biden throughout and that could hurt him.
1: Chuck, a final word before our last break.
2: Real quick, let me throw one more
4: uh, spice into this gumbo of speculation. If, when you look at this, I just looked at the weather forecast for Tuesday, 40% chance of rain in Atlanta, 40% in Columbus. If we have Mm. rain across the state, what does that do to this?
1: All right. Um, Chuck Williams with his weather report for next Tuesday. Thank (laughs) you for that, Chuck. Let's take our final break. We'll be back with more in a moment. Quick mention that today is newsletter day at Political Rewind. If you are not a subscriber, we'd love for you to join us. You can do it by just going to gpb.org/newsletters/plural and uh, sign up for the Georgia Today Political Rewind newsletter. I've written a piece today about the um, the the real the real risk that anti-Semitism is growing at a rapid pace in uh, this country, um, but also that the Trump uh, event the other night, his dinner with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West, yay. Uh, maybe, maybe when you have a Brian Kemp speaking out against that, um, other Republicans also speaking out that it was wrong to uh, be courting these uh, pernicious uh, bigots, uh, uh, maybe we're seeing some kind of a turn. I'm, I'm curious, Greg, it, it's interesting. I, let's put that into the co- larger context of the fact that the Walker campaign is feeling a sense of relief that Donald Trump has not uh, decided he's going to come in to campaign for uh, Herschel Walker. His brand does seem to be starting to wear a little thin with some Republicans.
2: For sure. I mean, his announcement a couple weeks ago did, was not the bombshell, did not reshape the races in ways that I think uh, or at least the, the political narrative in ways that um, uh, Trump's camp wanted it to. It did not freeze the field. It did not, um, you know, bite off any tongues from from uh, from criticizing Donald Trump. Uh, but at the same time, we saw we see with Herschel Walker, uh, especially this close to election, the wariness about antagonizing Trump and antagonizing that base. Because of all the senior Republicans that I I reached out to. Even Georgia GOP chair David Schaefer only said some negative, said something negative about anti-Semitism and uh, Fuentes. Um, but Herschel Walker's campaign wouldn't say a word. We went to several of his rallies afterwards. He didn't say a word about Fuentes. And it's the easiest thing in the world to condemn a white supremacist, racist, anti-Semitic Holocaust denier. Uh, and we have not seen Herschel yeah. Walker do that.
1: Uh, Maya and uh, Baymende, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Maya and then Baymende.
3: Well, I'll also note that Kanye West actually endorsed Herschel Walker at some point too. Uh, We saw that on, I think Instagram. And um, that was another thing that the Walker campaign didn't respond to. Um, There was also, there's just been a lot of instances where this campaign has had a clear opening to just say that this is wrong and they haven't. And it's, you know, for me and, and a few of the Republicans that I've talked to about this sort of are scratching their heads, wondering, this is like such an easy thing for you to just condemn. And you know that he won't be coming down to Georgia to try to, to, to say anything that could impact turnout for you. So just condemn the fact that this happened and condemn anti-Semitism and racism. There are people of color. There are Jewish people in Georgia who are conservative and who support Herschel Walker and are probably waiting um to, to hear him condemn this people want to see themselves and their politicians this this
1: doesn't this doesn't do that they i just i want to amplify what what maya just said uh, you know we t- typically across the country we think of jewish voters as being Democrats, but in fact there are many jewish conservative voters in a state like georgia some of them are big contributors to republican candidates so her point is really well made i think Where are they being heard right now by the Walker campaign?
0: Uh, Absolutely. It is very surprising and shocking that here's a clear instance, as as Maya said, where it would seem to be really uh, easy to say this is a line that was crossed that should not be crossed. Um, for whatever aspects of Trump that we support, this is completely unacceptable. Um, so I definitely would expect there is some frustration and some disappointment with seeing that and adding that uh, to the long list of Walker issues. Um, but definitely, there definitely seems to be a strong reluctance uh, of Walker campaign to, to put out any negative um, expressions towards Trump.
1: All right. um, Let's do this. Let's move on to other uh, news uh, uh, in politics uh, for just a few minutes. Certainly, we're going to be talking about the runoff throughout the rest of the week and early next week. Um, But, uh, Chuck, let's turn to the fact that a South Carolina court has now rejected Mark Meadows' efforts to avoid testifying before Fonnie Willis' special grand jury looking at efforts to overturn the election. It's another victory for Fonnie Willis she has not lost many of these. There are a couple of notable exa- uh, exceptions. Burt Jones uh, was able to uh, uh, get himself uh, taken off the target list um, in, when he went to court over this. But she's winning most of these, and it looks like these people like Mark Meadows could be a very important witness in front of that special grand jury.
4: You know, I hate grand jury. that grand jury testimony is secret because— this whole parade that Frank Williams had through the Fulton County courthouse, you, you just, I mean, the journalist to me wants to know what, what they're being asked and what they're saying. Because, you know, Mark Meadows, I mean, I mean, I know Greg and Maya, any journalist can sit there and think of the questions they wouldn't want to ask Mark Meadows right now related to January 6th and to the election. And, you know, She's clearly winning the battle. She's getting people in front of that jury, with, with the exception of Burt Jones, as you mentioned, Bill. She's getting the people in front of that grand jury. So when that information finally does start out, and if there are indictments, it's going to be really interesting to see what those indictments say.
1: Greg, Greg of, his, of particular interest to Georgians, I think, is Mark Meadows' role when he made his surprise visit. To Cobb County, where they were doing an audit of the election, he tried to get in for whatever purpose. We still don't really quite know. But why was he there? I'm sure the grand jury wants to know. And how does it fit in to the larger picture of the White House of the Trump allies' efforts to overturn the election? Yeah, I'm
2: sure that it was part of uh, at least one of the focuses of a lot of the questions was that surprise visit. Our colleague Mark Nisi, happened to be there, and you know when, when that surprise visit happened, and it was a, definitely a surprise, definitely caught off uh, state state elections officials off guard. Um, and of course, you know, being the, the former president, the then president's chief of staff, he had a front row seat to all the planning, all the the, the conversations, um, the phone calls, all that. He was on that famous phone call between Trump and, and Brad Raffensberger So. He was a part of so much of the uh, maneuvering to overturn Georgia's election results. So um, that testimony would be uh, very valuable for these grand jurors.
1: Maya, there are a couple of uh, prominent uh, uh, Trump allies who have been, who are continuing to resist, and still in court. One of them being Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, we know, actually encouraged the White House or the Trump campaign to run ads in Georgia, essentially uh, calling out the election as a fraud and calling for it uh, to be uh, somehow a a makeover of the election. He so far has resisted, uh, and so has Michael Flynn, uh, who also would have a lot to add to all of this.
3: Well, the one person I think about in, in this is Lindsey Graham, who tried to take this as high up as the Supreme Court yeah. to, to fight this and w- was unsuccessful in his efforts. I don't know what that means for the others, but it doesn't bode well for them. And, of course, I think the big question here, too, is whether uh, former President Trump is going to be brought into all of this um, or, or whether Fannie uh, Willis will, will try to go after him on, on, on this front. I don't know. I think a lot of people have tried to resist this and I, I share the same sentiments as, as the other reporters on this panel wondering exactly what the questions are and what they'll say. And hopefully down the road we'll have a better sense of exactly what this is. But I think also the overarching question is what what this will yield. What's the outcome here um, and whether D.A. Willis decides to prosecute.
1: Yeah, uh, because we have to remind our listeners this special grand jury uh, can make a recommendation that there should be a a criminal action filed, but they themselves can't do it, which, by the way, is one of the uh, arguments that people like Meadows have used when they've tried to avoid testifying, saying that because of interstate agreements, this is a civil grand jury, and those uh, interstate agreements uh, allowing people to testify shouldn't be honored. They're only for criminal cases. Uh, Bemenda, I introduced you by saying that you had arrived in Georgia at a fascinating time, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what's going on with Fonnie Willis, it is a fascinating time as well. Because even while uh, the Department of Justice has now uh, turned over their investigation of much of what's happening with Trump to a special counsel, it increasingly appears that the biggest jeopardy for Trump and some of his allies in terms of possible criminal prosecution right now is in the state of Georgia. Uh, An assistant DA told the AJC they're close to wrapping up their work, and who knows what comes next.
0: Right. It's been really impressive to watch this investigation unfold. Um, And as was mentioned earlier, um, for most individuals, their attempt to fight these subpoenas has failed. Uh, And it's just a part of this giant... I don't know if that's the right word, but in addition to the phone calls, we also have the controversies with fake um, electors as well, the visit to the uh, uh, election offices. Um, So there's definitely um, a number of issues that centered on Georgia that seem to, at least from my read of it, spell trouble for those associated uh, with the attempt to uh, overturn or disrupt the 2020 election.
1: All right. One last thing before we uh, go, Greg. Um, Yesterday, the United States Senate, in a bipartisan vote, uh, cast ballots to codify same-sex marriage and interracial marriage into federal law. Of course, the Supreme Court in Obergefell had already uh, said the Constitution allows for same-sex marriage, but... In the aftermath of the decision on Roe, you had Clarence Thomas saying that maybe the same reasons that we overturned Roe could be used to overturn things like Oberfell. So yesterday was an important uh, statement by a bipartisan uh, uh, majority of senators to say we uh, stand by same-sex marriage.
2: Yeah, exactly that. It was a hedge against a, a Supreme Court decision down the line that could threaten this case law and it was a clear and convincing majority. Uh, it was 61 votes. It would have been, I think it was 61, it would have been 62 had Senator Warnock not been in the middle of the campaign trail, right? And so I think he has an excused absence from his colleagues. They understand why he's, he's out and about, not in Washington right now. But uh, a, a very decisive majority, uh, filibuster proof majority, uh, supported this, this measure.
1: Uh, Mende, uh, Republicans mm-hmm. did get a big concession for uh, religious on religious grounds, saying that nothing in this uh, measure uh, would uh, uh, compel religious organizations from offering services, goods, or anything else in support of same-sex marriage. And there are some mm-hmm. uh, on the pro same-sex marriage side who believe that that concession is is unfortunate and waters down the measure a bit, but it did get them to the majority they needed.
0: Right, you're exactly right. There's been some criticism of what the end result is, but some Democrats and some Democratic supporters are really clear that this is the best that we could do, given the current lay of the Senate right now. We, w- we would like to go further, but we have to work with what we have. Um, and that, that concession uh, played a role in some senators giving their support to the uh, measure that was passed.
1: Maya, the same-sex marriage provision is uh, obviously getting the most attention. I frankly was very surprised when I re- realized in reading about this measure that interracial marriage had never been codified in federal law either. I mean, that, that struck me um, as, uh, it, it, I guess it's progress, but it's a late progress on that front.
3: Yeah, I think all of this should underline, again, the importance of the judiciary and the ways that it's changed so much and, and really been radicalized over the last few years. And the ways that uh, members of Congress and the United States Senate have recognized that. I mean, these are rights that are actually really fragile and more fragile, I agree, uh, with you, Bill, than I thought. Um, But now that they're a little bit more protected, you know, this is it could give the judiciary more room to continue to try to pass these more radical measures. Or it could maintain these protections and perhaps ward off the worst of things.
1: Yeah, we were actually. We actually should say that there were those in the aftermath of of uh, Roe uh, overturned who thought they could also use the same argument to overturn the right, the constitutional right, to interracial uh, marriage. All right, we're completely out of time for today's show. I wish we weren't, but uh, uh, we've got to get out of here. Greg Bluestein, Maya King. Uh, Chuck Williams, Baymende Johnson, thank you for a terrific conversation covering so much ground on today's show. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and get out there. Cast a ballot. Bye-bye, everybody.